Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Ziggler Show, planet Earth's source for inspiring your true performance. I'm your honored host, Kevin Miller. Today, we have episode 476, where Tom Ziegler and I talk with Dr. Kristen Neff. She is here because my wife, Terry, had to watch Kristen's TED Talk for her doctoral studies and asked me to watch it with her. That talk now has over 800,000 views. So Kristen wrote a book titled Self-Compassion, The Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself. You can find her at self Compassion. .org. What hooked me on the talk, though, was her commentary on self-esteem, and that's really why I brought her here to The Ziggler Show. Now, Zig Ziggler was the king of calling us to the necessity of a healthy self-image, but when Kristen divulged the research of how our culture has primarily gone about achieving self-esteem at the sake of others and what it's done to all of us, I was just floored, especially in realizing that I too was a victim and a part of this. So two big focal points you'll get from this talk are in relation to one, how we tend to equate self-esteem with comparing to or being better than others. And number two, how our self-esteem is conditional generally. We have better self-esteem if, it's an if statement, it's a contingent upon X, Y, Z. Again, folks, this is an interview that will equip you to better address your own self-esteem in a healthy way that will then empower you to be and do what you need uh, to to, to be and do uh, to get what you need and desire. Because here's the point. To, we're here to bring you tools and resources to help you progress in your life. However, that looks for you. We want to eliminate the things that handicap and limit you. This issue today is just really huge. Uh, again, I watched Dr. Kristen Neff's Ted talk, uh, then reviewed the book to pull out big issues that I wanted more information on. And that is what Tom Ziegler and I discuss with her today. what you are and where you are because of what's gone into your mind. You can change what you are. You can change where you are by changing what goes into your mind. You cannot become what you need to be by remaining what you are. If you can't take a huge step to begin with, take as big a step as you can, but take it now. That's the key. Take it now. You can have everything in life you want if you'll just help enough other people get what they want. Today is a brand new day, and it's yours. As you listen to this show, you will likely have some thoughts, questions, concerns, and how to apply this to your life or about your experience in this topic. Don't let them just sit there. Please send them to us. Uh, so that we can talk about them in our upcoming Q&A show, go to ask.zigshow.com or email them to ask at zigshow.com. Again, we're going to address them in an upcoming Q&A show. So go to ask.zigshow.com or email us at ask at zigshow.com. And also, would you bless us by leaving a rating or review right now? in iTunes. Just share something about the show that you appreciate or has benefited you. Leaving a rating or review is the number one thing that raises our rankings and helps so many more people who are seeking this message find us. Thanks so much. 
HP Workstations is a proud sponsor of this episode. They enable you to innovate without boundaries, expanding as your workflow grows. Plus, you get free shipping returns and customer support 24-7, 365. Right now, you can get an exclusive offer just for Ziggler listeners. Get 15% off select HP Workstations with the Intel Core i5 processor when you go to hp.com slash Ziggler and enter code Ziggler at checkout. That's hp.com slash Ziggler, enter code Ziggler to get 15% off select HP workstations. This special discount is valid through July 31st. Whether you have a small business that is looking to grow or you are established and ready to take the next step, HP's workstations with Intel Core i5 processors are for you. Okay, folks, here is Tom Ziegler and I talking with Dr. Kristen Neff to break down the issue and value of self-compassion and self-esteem. Well, Kristen, as I think you know, I contacted you after my wife, Terry, asked me to watch your TED Talk with her. Uh, your talk, which I, I just saw is nearing 800,000 views already, was required curriculum in her PhD studies uh, right now. And about five minutes into it, I told her, oh my gosh, we've got to get her on the Ziegler Show because I know this message. Uh, this is something our audience needs. So thank you so much for being here with us today. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to, to talk with you. Well, I am. I am too. I feel like I know you, of course, because I've watched you now. I've read you. And, you know, I really wanted to start off right at the top. I mean, in your book, in your message, you do a lot to, and I don't know what you would say, if it's redefine or maybe just correctly clarify what self-compassion actually is. And I wanted to just ask you to start right there. Give us, uh, help us understand it better. Yeah, and it's important because it's not really something that's talked about in our culture or even necessarily valued. So a lot of my time is spent explaining what self-compassion is and also what it's not. Okay. <laughs> right. So, um, I mean, it's, it's really easy to think about self-compassion if we just imagine the same feelings of compassion that we normally have for others applied to ourselves. So what does compassion for others feel like, right? Well, first of all, let's, let's say you're walking down the street and there's a homeless person. And let's face it, some days we have compassion for that homeless person and some days we don't. Okay, so what, what's the difference? Well, usually the days we have compassion for that person, the first thing that have, has to happen is we have to notice that they're suffering. Right. If we ignore them or we or, or what also happens is sometimes we just don't want to go there. We don't want to like face the fact that there's this homeless person suffering. So we tune them out. Well, the first step of compassion is being willing to say, hey, you know, there's suffering here. Something's going on. The same with ourselves. The first step of self-compassion is just being aware that we're struggling. We're having a moment of difficulty. All right. Now, the second thing for it to be, let's say, a compassionate response to that homeless person is to respond with care and concern. I mean, you might notice that he's suffering and say, bum, get him off the street, right? It's not necessarily a compassionate response. But if it's a compassionate response, there's a sense of kind of kindness, care, concern, maybe even some desire to help in some way. And really crucial, if it's compassion and not pity, Right. Very important. It's compassion, not pity. There's a sense, uh, you know, there, but for fortune, go I. That could be me in other circumstances. That's a human being. I'm a human being. You know, we're, we're all vulnerable. And so those same three elements are what um, define self-compassion. It's noticing when we're suffering, 
being kind to ourselves as opposed to harshly judgmental, which is a more typical reaction. Yeah. Just remembering that, hey, whoever said that I'm supposed to be perfect, whoever said life's supposed to be perfect, this is the human condition. So when we remember those three things, then we are in a state of self-compassion and then it's big difference in our ability to cope with the difficulties of life. Okay. Well, you already mentioned what my next question was, is what is it not? Because I assume, well, no, I don't have to assume. I read the book. So now I know I have been under some misperceptions of what self-compassion is. So can you, in the same sense, kind of outline those highlights? Absolutely. The same ones come up over and over again. There's basically five and the same ones come up. I've talked to audiences all around the world. The same ones come up. The first we've kind of dealt with, you know, people are afraid self-compassion is self-pity. If it weren't for common humanity, it could be. It could be, woe is me, poor me. You know, that's self-pity. Self-compassion is just saying, hey, I'm struggling. It's, in, it's really the humble agenda of including ourselves in the circle of compassion, not just giving it outward and denying it to us inward. Um, probably the number one fear about self-compassion, the misperception people have, is that it's going to undermine our motivation, that we actually need our harsh self-criticism, like to have our edge. And if we're kind to ourselves, kind means just being kind of complacent and like not really trying very hard. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think it's very easy to see why that's not the case. If we think about how does a compassionate parent or maybe a compassionate athletics coach motivate their student? Does a compassionate parent or coach say, yeah, don't worry about it. Don't practice. Don't try. I don't care if you win or not. Mm-hmm. You know, or, or does the parent say to their kid, yeah, you know, you don't feel like studying for your math course, don't worry about it. That's not compassionate, right? When we care about someone and we want them to do our our best or their best, we're going to do everything we can to help that person, the other, achieve their goals, but we're going to do it with kindness and support as opposed to shame and blame. So the research is overwhelming on this point. People who are more self-compassionate or help to be self-compassionate, they're more motivated, not less motivated, because they have their own back right? They're there to support themselves, which means they're less afraid of failure. When they do fail, they're more willing to pick themselves up. I mean, think about shame. If you use shame as a motivator, how's that working for you? Think about being in a state of shame. I mean, we just shut down. We aren't in in, in the place, the mental place we need to do our best. So self-compassion gives us support, the support we need to, to reach our goals. Um, there's a ton of them. A lot of people think self-compassion is selfish, right? That I'm only supposed to be focused on meeting the needs of others. But if you think about it, there's really few states of mind more self-focused than shame and self-criticism. When I'm in a state of shame and self-criticism, I'm not thinking about anyone else except my poor, worthless self. What self-compassion does when I say, hey, you know, it's normal to fail. This is part of being human. Is it actually, first of all, it allows us not to separate ourselves from others, to be, you know, just be more other-focused as well. Um, But it also gives us um, basically the the support we need to give to others. If we're constantly giving, 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 and not, taking anything for ourselves, we're going to be drained and we're going to burn out. So for instance, there's a big uh, research literature on on, uh, self-compassion for caregivers. Caregivers who are more self-compassionate are more able to sustain giving to others without just depleting their resources. So, I mean, I can go on. There's more other ones, but those are the big ones, that it's selfish, that it's self-pity, or or that it's self-indulgent. Again, self-compassion, if you care about yourself, 
you're going to take care of yourself. You aren't going to skip work and like eat bonbons all day, right? That's not kind to yourself or helpful for your well-being. So again, if any if any of your listeners are interested, they go to my website, selfcompassion.org. They can read about it. You don't have to take my word for it. We have solid empirical evidence right now at this point to show that none of these misgivings are true. Thank goodness. So, so I'm uh, kind of being like a nerd and loving this kind of stuff. Okay. Uh, I was digging into this idea of self-awareness. Yes. And in self-awareness, uh, one of the studies that I heard about where they d- looked at self-awareness, it was the number one common denominator the top CEOs have. Interesting. Right. Yeah. So CEOs, uh, what it means is, is they get a 360 feedback loop. They have mentors who they trust, who can tell them the truth and they'll, they'll, and, and they know what their blind spot is. That's right. Right. Yeah. So, so how does self-awareness feed into, uh, self-compassion how do those two kind of go hand in hand well so self-awareness so one of these the core components of self-compassion is what I, I call mindfulness but it's pretty much the same thing mindfulness self-awareness being aware of the thoughts you have being aware of the emotional state you have you have being able to see yourself clearly that's really that's core to self-compassion because again if we don't see ourselves and realize when we're struggling we can't be kind to ourselves um i bet that research study may not have looked at it but some leaders might be self-aware but when they fail like they can't take critical feedback they can't take failure because they, they again drop into shame and those are the less effective leaders the most effective leaders are the ones who can say who can learn from their failure who can learn from their mistakes you can hear feedback and say, you know, you're right. Maybe I'll change the way I do something without being defensive. And that is precisely what self-compassion gives you. The sense of support that, you know, yeah, I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. It's still okay. And that's what allows us to be open to receive the, the feedback, which is number one for growth and learning. Yeah. Okay. Well, and uh, this is it belies one of the reasons that my beloved wife had me listen to this because it's not uh-huh. as, as we're going to talk about, because I, I, as often in these interviews, I can't help but take it personally because I have a lot to learn here, but this is an area, I mean, Kristen in reading the book, um, it was, I, I had to really dig in cause this is not a natural area for me. And you just talked about that. Uh, well, you've mentioned a couple of times, so we're going to get there. I do though, in, in digging into the problem, into the issue here yeah. In these interviews, I do like to step off and kind of look at what's the carrot? What is the result, the motive that we're looking towards when we go through this? And as we're going to hit some of the details and we achieve a level of self-compassion or an increasing level of self-compassion, what are the payoffs? What is, what is healthy self-compassion look like that is going to, here I am now, I'm going to go to X with self-compassion. Give us a little uh, concept here. So again, there's almost, there's over a thousand research studies now, pretty much all pointing out the benefits of self-compassion. So uh, for instance, it's certainly better for mental well-being. People are less depressed, less anxious, less stressed, less suicidal. Um, They're happier. They're more optimistic. They function better. They cope better with adversity. I mean, just to give you a little example, we did a study of self-compassion and veterans coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. Here's another misgiving. A lot of people think self-compassion is weak. 
Mm. We can tell you those veterans, those war, those soldiers who came back from overseas with more self-compassion were much less likely to suffer from PTSD nine months later than those veterans who like criticized themselves and beat themselves up and got lost in this, you know, mental state of how terrible they were for what they saw. I mean, so self-compassion gives you the strength and resilience needed to cope. Um, it's also, it also looks like it's um, manifesting physically, for instance, better immune function. People with more self-compassion, their, their immune system actually functions better because we know there's a mind-body connection. Um, they have better relationships. Actually, um, if anyone's like, really looking to find a self-compassionate partner, you can have your potential date, maybe from match.com, go to my website and get their score before you meet for coffee. Because <laughs> what we know is that um, people describe self-compassionate partners in much more positive terms. They, they, they say that they're more caring, more giving, they're less controlling, they're less defensive, they get less angry in the relationship. You know, and again, it makes sense because if I can meet some of my own needs for care and support and just kind of know that I have my own back, I'm not going to be reliant on you to meet all my needs exactly the way I want them met, exactly when I want them met. So it's good for relationships. Um, there's really almost no domain in which self-compassion doesn't seem to be good. And again, it's because it's so core to who we are. It basically means supporting ourselves in times of struggle. How can that be a bad thing? You know, do we want to walk around being an inner ally or an inner enemy? That's really our choice. Every moment of struggle, am I going to be an ally? Am I going to have my own back? Am I going to support myself? Am I going to care for myself? Or am I going to pull the rug out from underneath myself and be lost in shame and self-criticism and self-judgment? You know, and it doesn't mean that you don't see your mistakes or you gloss them over, you know. Oh, well, maybe I shouldn't have robbed that bank. You know, at quite the opposite. We know from research that people are more self-compassionate and hold themselves to higher moral standards because they can face up to what they've done. So it's actually good for taking personal responsibility. Um, it's really, you know, obviously I'm, I'm very passionate about the subject, but I've been just amazed by how consistent the research is in showing how this helps well-being. So I, Go ahead. I've got I've got a question. One of the things that we do, it's and it's it's probably the single most powerful thing that we have that we recommend that somebody could do to change the story they tell themselves. And it's it's our, it's our Ziegler self-talk card. Okay. In fact, Kevin, it's probably the most popular podcast as far as results that we've ever done. And in the self-talk card, there are all these positive qualities. And what you do is you read them out loud to yourself while you're looking in the mirror. Uh-huh. You know, I am honest, uh, loving, kind, considerate. And you read that out and it's like a self-affirmation. Yes. But one of, the, one of the common things that I get is people will comment to me, oh, when I get to that word, I, I have to skip it, <laughs> right? They're just, they don't believe it. They're not feeling it. They almost feel like they're lying if they, and at Ziegler, we don't say fake it till you make it. We say tell the truth in advance. Yeah. See, the, so, problem, the problem with positive self-affirmations, though, the research is pretty mixed about them. So if, you're, if it's a positive affirmation about a true quality and you actually do believe it, it's very good to appreciate validate and honor what's good, not just see the negative, see what's positive. But if you do a positive affirmation in something you don't really believe about yourself, it actually has the opposite effect. Um, it doesn't help give you confidence. It actually undermines your confidence because you don't really believe it. So the thing about self-compassion 
is it saying, yes, I've got these great qualities and I have weaknesses and it's okay to have weaknesses. What's important is that I can learn and grow from my mistakes. So it just shifts the whole orientation from I am good versus I am bad, which is kind of self-esteem, to how can I learn and grow from this experience? Right. That type of growth mindset we know, and I'm sure you've had people with growth mindset on this show, is much more effective. Right. And so what I counsel people on or what I tell them in that scenario is, hey, you know what? You, You have all these qualities within you. Some of them just aren't developed. Some of them aren't polished. And so you flip it from, well, I'm not that way to, well, it's okay. I'm where I am today and I'm growing into that. So is that self-affirmation? Is that giving your... Well, it kind of depends how it's done. And a lot of it's kind of the intention when you do it. You know, you just have to be a little careful of saying something that you don't feel within your gut is true. Because that research shows that can actually have a negative consequence. But on the other hand... We totally take our qualities for granted and we ignore them. And that's not good either. So it's very, it's very useful to be aware of your good qualities, to be aware of your strengths, to, you know, really affirm them. At the same time, we don't want it to be sugarcoating reality or, or a denial of our weaknesses. You know, and so when we open up to the whole spectrum, our strengths and our weaknesses, and we're kind to ourselves regardless of whether we're considering a strength or a weakness, that's where the real strength comes, from my point of view, anyway. Right. So how would we use self-affirmation to acknowledge, hey, wait a second, I'm not as disciplined as I know I should be? Yeah. And so, But I want to be more disciplined. So how would self-affirmation change my mindset to where now I'm, I'm okay with, you know, I'm not blaming myself for the past because it's not going to help me in the future. Yes. But I'm growing now. So how would we do that? So what we do, so for instance, we do it um, in, in the program we developed to teach self-compassion. We have a very powerful um, compassionate motivation exercise. So you identify a weakness that you have that's causing you problems. Like maybe you're a habitual procrastinator. That's a, that's a really common one. And the procrastination is starting to get in your way. It's starting to keep you from achieving as much as you could achieve because you're a procrastinator. So self-compassion doesn't say you aren't a procrastinator or it's fine to be a procrastinator. If you care about yourself, you can say, you know, actually, yeah, this behavior is causing problems. The whole difference is how we set about, how we go about changing it. You know, basically, are you a supportive, helpful friend? You know, hey, even if, if this behavior never changes, I will still love you. I will still accept you. But what can I do to help? What, what, what plan can we put into place to help? You know, how can I support you in your goal to change as opposed to using shame and self-criticism and judgment, which is like basically shooting yourself in the foot. So, I, I, again, I wouldn't call it so much self-affirmation, but maybe, maybe what, what needs to be affirmed is the value of caring for your own well-being. You know, if you care about yourself and you really want to succeed, you can affirm that value, that kind of inner friend that's in you. Affirm the part of you that cares, also the part of you that's wise. I think a lot of us have a lot of wisdom we can't access to because it's too much other stuff in the way. So you might think of it as affirming maybe our inner compassion itself opening the door to listen to that part of ourselves who usually get shut down. That might be a way these two approaches can be merged successfully. I don't know. This is off the top of my head, but I mean, there is something about affirmation 
It just has to be done carefully so it's not sugarcoating, that's all. Well, I'm sitting here thinking about my own needs and it would not be standing in front of the mirror going, Kevin, you are a compassionate guy because yeah, inside I'd be going, no, you're not. But if I can sit there and go, you can become, you are growing to be, that I can, that I can embrace. And you have, and you have a part of you that's compassionate. And actually, um, I want to address this issue of uh, not being compassionate because what happens? A lot of people learn about self compassion. They hear their research. I've actually gotten emails from people saying, "Thanks, Doctor Neff. One more thing, I'm bad at. You know, they beat themselves up for beating themselves up. So what we need to know, very important, is that both self criticism and self-compassion are natural and they're part of our biological inheritance. So um, there is a really good reason why we're naturally more compassionate to others than we are to ourselves. And that's because um, what happens when we feel threatened, right? So biologically, our, our oldest nervous system reaction, the first thing that comes online when there's a threat is we go into fight, flight, or flight fight, flight, or freeze mode, right? And so the system was designed for if a lion's chasing us, we've got to get ready to fight that lion or play dead. Nowadays, most of the threats are to our self-concept. So if we get that poor work evaluation, our sense of self is we go into fight, flight, or flee mode just as if a lion was chasing us. It's a very kind of reactive mode. We aren't at our best, release cortisol and adrenaline. And unfortunately, the problem we fight is ourselves because if we feel we failed, then we fight ourselves um, and criticize ourselves, hoping that will help. Or we get, we freeze, we get like locked rumination and goes around and around in our head, or we just avoid the situation. We just like pretend it's not there. So it's very natural to criticize yourself when you feel threatened. Now think about it. When your best friend fails, you aren't personally threatened. So it's easier for you to draw on these other resources of compassion that are also there. So don't blame yourself. This is, this is just part of being a human being. But we do have, so the threat defense system, sometimes it's called the reptilian brain. It's like a very, very old nervous system reaction. But we're also mammals. So what's unique about mammals as compared to reptiles? Well, the million young, our infants are born very immature, and humans by far are born the most immature. It's a very long time to grow up and learn the skills needed to face the world. But this long developmental period means we're very flexible and we can adjust and we can really, you know, adapt ourselves to the environment. Um, So as mammals, and especially as human mammals, we have something called the attachment system, right? In the presence of kind of warmth and feeling cared for, um, even physical touch, these things make us feel safe and allow us to meet the life's challenges at our best, right? So really all we need to do when we're threatened in some way is move from the system of threat defense, you know, beating ourselves up to fight the problem, and become a friend to ourselves, tap into our also natural compassion system, which is part of our biological inheritance. You say you are very compassionate, but I suspect you are to others. It's just that you don't include yourself in the circle of, compassion because when you feel threatened and it's natural don't judge yourself but you just need to find a way of switching from one skill set to another so it's actually a lot easier than you might think you know it's not rocket science well i'm I'm reading it it's it's not uh not it doesn't feel so natural but i'm hearing you and i'm I'm learning that's what the gift is of getting through the book and doing this interview you know so we are talking self-compassion what caught my attention in that Ted talk and, uh, solidified me contacting you 
for uh-huh. this was when you started talking about self-esteem and how we generally work, how we generally work to achieve it. Uh, it's generally ego driven and attained by being above average, better than others. And it struck a chord with me because of course I relate. And, and while I wasn't brought up at least consciously with, or blatantly with the focus on being better than others, there was an expectation to excel, be the best me that I can be, yada, yada, but it seems so hard not to have the measuring stick be to a degree in comparison to others. So you know, today, of course, I'm thinking about myself as a father today, I'm telling my kids that their focus is to be their, uh, is, is to be their best selves, not be better than others specifically. But again, how is the gauging of their performance, not somewhat in relation to others? I mean, you point out the errancy of this mm-hmm. method. And again, that grabbed me because I thought, geez, that's, that totally makes sense what we're doing to ourselves. But my goodness, it actually just seems like a gigantic paradigm shift that the, the sky has been blue. And now you're saying, you know what? It's, it's actually red. I'm going to, you know what? I see that, but holy smokes. So self-esteem, um, am I, I'm sure I'm not alone. And that's one that just, oh my gosh, that just, uh, that seems inescapable in our culture. Okay, folks, a quick pause right here is where we get into the catalyst for this interview, Kristen's research on self-esteem and self-worth. We all know a foundational focus of Zig Ziglar was a healthy self-image, but Kristen is going to showcase, again, how we have gone about self-esteem in an unhealthy way, achieving self-esteem in an unhealthy way. And when I first heard her talk on it, I realized I too had engaged in some errant ways. Uh, Before she tackles the issue, I want to share from two great services that are supporting this show. Blue Apron. It is now summer and time for picnics, potlucks, dinner parties, barbecues. For my family living high up in the Rockies, it means a lot of guests coming to have fun. We've been averaging 12 to 15 people at dinner for the last two weeks. As a major food-loving family, good food, of course, is essential, and now it's easier than ever to create delicious summer meals with Blue Apron. I keep sharing that my kids look forward to Blue Apron nights and vie to help cook the awesome recipes so they can, of course, eat it, but also be in the picture that we take at the end of cooking our food. Uh, For less than 10 bucks a meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients right to your door. Blue Apron is completely flexible, so you can customize your recipes each week and choose a delivery option that fits your needs and delay it if needed, which I do when we're traveling, especially during the summer. I really appreciate Blue Apron's freshness guarantee that promises every ingredient arrives ready to cook or they will make it right. Some of the meals available in July include seared chicken and creamy pasta salad with summer squash and sweet peppers, creamy shrimp rolls with quick pickles and sweet potato wedges, Fresh basil fettuccine pasta with sweet corn and cubanelle pepper. Chili butter steaks with Parmesan potatoes and spinach. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash Ziggler. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So go there now. That's blueapron.com slash Ziggler. Blue Apron is just a better way to cook. Zip Recruiter. For those of you who are hiring, do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Finding great talent can be tough, but it's vital for a successful business. I have a business that is 100% different today than a year ago because we replaced all the employees with ones who specifically fit each position perfectly. With Zip Recruiter, you can post your job to 100 plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different 
Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. Over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours, which is massively impressive and testifies to their power. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, Ziggler listeners can post their jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right. Totally free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. Yeah. And so, by the way, there's nothing wrong with self-esteem. We want to have a solid sense of self-worth. We want our kids to have a solid sense of self-worth. It's very important. You want to feel worthy as opposed to hate yourself. Because if you don't have a sense of self-worth, if you feel unworthy, you're going to have lots of problems. In worst case scenario, you might even, you know, decide to try to end it all, right? So, of course, we need to feel worthy. The whole difference is what do we base that worthiness on, right? So as you say, typically, especially in American society, it's not okay to be average. We have to be special and above average, which is a logical impossibility for everyone to achieve at the same time. So that's problem number one, right? If your self-esteem is predicated on a logical impossibility, that's a problem, okay? So um, that's one aspect. We, we feel better. We need to feel better than others. We compare ourselves to others. The other thing is that self-esteem tends to be contingent. In other words, um, we have high self-esteem when we succeed, but what happens when we fail? We're basing our sense of self-worth on success or failure. And this could be in many domains. It may be business or sports for men. For women, it's often succeeding in the domain of attractiveness. You know, you feel good about myself on a, a good hair day and bad about myself on a bad hair day, right? right. So basically, um, the problem with that is that it's unstable. Now, Self-compassion, you might say, is a sense of unconditional Mm self-worth. I'm worthy because I am a human being doing the best I can, right? I'm a human being like every other human being. All human beings are intrinsically worthy of respect, are intrinsically worthy of kindness. You don't have to, like, earn the right to human respect if you're a human. From this point of view, you, 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 you've earned the right to respect, some basic level of human respect. And that's where you get your sense of self-worth from, is from being a human being. And therefore, that's not contingent. We have it especially on those days when we fail. We can turn to ourselves and say, wow, I really blew it. Oh, oh, that hurts. Yeah. Ah, you know, and that kind of, ah, you know, I'm here for you. I'm, I'm, I'm a friend in that your time of need. That's where we get the sense of self-respect and self-worth from. And the sense of care, not the sense of outperforming others or getting it right necessarily. So just to, to say one research study I did with a colleague, we looked at sense of self-worth like on a daily basis. I think we did it 12 times over eight months. And the sense of self-worth linked to self-compassion was really stable. It's kind of there in good days and in bad days where self-esteem, it goes up and down. So it's a much more stable way of kind of respecting ourselves because it's not contingent on being better than others or on success. Right. So you, so you made a, um, an interesting connection there. Uh, Dad, Dad said the number one cause of a poor self-image is a lack of unconditional love. And so you use the self-awareness or self-compassion yes. is kind of an unconditional it is. Love or compassion towards yourself. Yeah. Um, and our value is not in performance. It's in who we are. 
That's right. And of course, as a, as a Christian, I say it's in whose we are. Right. And so I, I like that. So we're on this journey and we're struggling, right? We're hard on ourselves. Right. So what, what, what's like the, you said it's not rocket science. What's the simple, easy way to kind of stop the cycle? Yeah, I mean, I think friendship is one really good paradigm. We have most of us, hopefully, have the experience of being a good friend. But also, um, I think parent, in, in many ways, um, a lot of our problems, hate to say it, come from not having the ideal parenting situation. In a way, what we're doing with self-compassion is we're kind of reparenting ourselves. In other words, in every moment of struggle, we're saying, what do I need right now? What do I need to, to be happy or calm or do my best? And we try to give ourselves what we need, including unconditional love. Because let's face it, other people are unreliable. They have their own fires to put out. But we can be there for ourselves in a way that, you know, sometimes other people can't be. I mean, yeah, you're talking about self-esteem. I mean, as I, as I hear you, my paradigm, and I, I would uh, guess you would say, yeah, the cultural paradigm, it's, just, it's a self-esteem, a level of self, self-esteem if it's conditional. That's and to right, not yeah. have that sounds incredibly peaceful, um, which you talked yeah. about that anxiety uh, and, and, and the stress that we have. Is- yes. Yeah. So, so I'll give you a little example. Um of how it works. So, you know, I'm going to be a little poetic here and maybe take off my scientist hat. Um, Self-compassion is kind of a a space of, um, if we use different words than kindness, mindfulness, and common humanity, sometimes I like to call it loving connected presence. really explains what self-compassion feels like. There's kindness, loving, you feel connected, there's a sense of common humanity, and you're present, you're being mindful. Now, loving, connected presence is actually a positive emotion. It's something that elevates us, that makes us feel whole, that makes us feel complete, that makes us feel happy. So what we're doing in moments of struggle or pain or, you know, stress is we're holding ourselves in loving, connected presence. So we're generating this positive emotion, this kind of positive field to hold the pain. And it can really transform things. And I, I write a lot about this in my book, but, you know, my son um, is autistic. And when he was young, I mean, it was just, it was, it was horrible. It was horrible. It was, you know, being in the supermarket for no reason at all. I had the full on screaming, flailing tantrum at six years old. And you're thinking, you know, what am I doing? You just feel overwhelmed and it feels like the worst thing in the world. I actually learned that in those moments, if I could just like rest my awareness in the compassion, holding the pain, so I was still stressed. It was still difficult, but I would just say, this is so hard for you, darling. You know, I'm kind of a little mushy with myself because I'm a mom, you know, this is so hard, so hard for you, darling. I'm so sorry. You know, I'm here for you. We'll get through this. Um, But actually you learn to rest your awareness in the kindness and the friendship and the love holding the pain so you aren't so overwhelmed by the pain and that's part of its magic because any single moment can be full of loving connected presence it is possible well you talk you actually mentioned it a minute ago that this uh kind of a fun well you said it in your ted talk and it brought a laugh from the crowd of where uh, you know, the majority of the people sitting in the, audi- in the audience think that they're above average and, you know, the, the, the numbers yeah. don't work here. And I, I wonder when we all live amongst that, what have you seen, not only maybe even going beyond just the individual consequences of that, but as a culture, 
And yeah. you know, we've got a lot of talk right now uh, with the millennials. And I think it's just, this is the next yeah. group that we're seeing the fruitions, the consequences of all of our actions through the generations here as we're seeing it manifest so acutely in them. What has that caused? And we all go around thinking that we should be, or we are either way above average. And yet it's statistically not possible. What's it doing in our culture? Yeah. So, well, I mean, in some ways shifting away from the self-esteem culture is pretty radical shift because our entire economy is based on buy my products that you'll be that, you know, you'll get the edge. Mm -hmm. And so all the focus on looks, you know, all the obsession with plastic surgery, with clothing, with all, all those identity markers where we try to say my band, my racial group, my whatever is better than yours. In some ways that's kind of an innocent attempt to care about ourselves. Mm feel good about ourselves we don't have to really judge it but the problem is of course um, a lot of division in society a lot of superficiality in society Um, you know people talk about even relationships aren't quite as deep as they used to be because it's more like how many friends on Facebook you have as opposed to the quality of the interaction you have so I mean part of me is worried I have to say though I'm not I'm not there's a little part of me that has hope because I also feel like among the millennials, I've met a lot of young people who are kind of interested in finding different ways of doing things. And you are actually really quite open to some of these ideas if you just give them a little exposure. So maybe the the new age or the new the new millennials are willing to reject some of the paradigms of the past, which is about just being the, the prettiest and the thinnest and the richest and the you know smartest. Maybe they'll actually help us learn to find a new way to live in, in society. I don't know. I hope so anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so here I've got a personal thing and, I, and I've actually, those who are longtime listeners of the Ziegler show have heard me talk about this. So I'm going to pull it out because we're hitting right on this issue of self-esteem. It's been a frustration of mine and I'll, uh, regarding competition. So I'm a lifelong athlete. I mean, I, I got paid to win and that was good to get a paycheck. And it was, you know, it was, it was winning. It was being better than somebody else. And I appreciate the discipline and the training and the teaching of sports. Of course, I've had my kids involved in running races. It's been a, a thing that we do as a family and running cross country and track. And there's a series of races in our area here of Colorado that we participate in. And the mantra is everybody wins. And when everybody comes across the finish line, they all get a blue ribbon. Well, then over here on the other side, we have corporate America right now who's frustrated at that because they say that's not the real world. You don't all just get a prize for showing up at work. You actually do have to perform and we want you to excel and there are rewards for it. So there's a disconnect. And even as, again, I'm working with my kids on not being braggart and not being boastful. I mean, I see my little guy when he wins his race and he's out distance, everybody, he has joy. And when he doesn't, he's frustrated. And so I'm looking for some kind of a, a reconciliation between wanting to do our best, wanting to excel, but Mm -hmm. also not doing it at the expense of, of others. It feels difficult in that specific scenario there. Yeah, and so well, and I'm sure you know the answer to your own question. I and mean, of course, we all want to excel, and, and it's a human race. We want to achieve our goals and help yeah. help save the world and the planet and all this. Yeah. Um, but really, what are your benchmarks, right? So if you, let's say you couldn't run for years because you had some physical issue, just crossing that finish line mm-hmm. actually may be an achievement. Yeah. So for some people, it may be enough. You, you don't want to 
how do I put it? I mean, it can also go too far the other way. Everyone gets a prize. Everyone gets an A in class just for trying to take the math test. You want your um, sense of achievement to be linked to real benchmarks, real pride, but personal benchmarks, right? So in other words, how, how my level of success is contingent on have I improved? Have I learned? Have I grown? Have I tried my best? Right. Not the fact that I'm in a race with someone else who's just, you know, a lot younger and fitter and more experienced than I, and they win. Right. So you can still have those benchmarks. And even when you fail your own benchmarks, it doesn't mean that shame and self-criticism and and I'm terrible is a good response. It's the, the response is, how can I learn from this so I do better next time? Right. right. And it's just like, think of that ideally supportive, encouraging coach. He wasn't probably, or he or she probably wasn't easy on you because he or she knew what you had and what you're capable of mm-hmm. and pushed you and maybe even drove you hard. But the, that shaming, belittling coach probably didn't do as yeah. well as that really supportive, encouraging, motivating, caring coach believed in you and stretched you as well so that's really the kind of line i actually like to think of the ideally motivating coach as a good metaphor for what we try to achieve with ourselves you know in our industry we work with a lot of speakers a lot of authors a lot of presenters and of course everybody wants to get on stage and they want to do a great job and how do you know if you did a good job it's the applause it's do you get invited back it's the letters and the emails after you're done and it almost sends people into an ego site i call it a speakeritis right if they're they're really good they believe the reviews yeah right and their ego gets so big that uh they're all that there is and so you know they can do what they want they don't have to prepare and then that's the beginning of the end yeah, yeah. Right. And then there's others who really have a lot to say and they're new in the game and they struggle and they don't get the feedback and they're like, oh, I'm an idiot. I could never, you know. Yeah. Or they give up. Yeah. Right. So they give up. And so, you know, dad had a very he, he had a very, very strong position on that. And, and this is what he said. I used to say, you know, dad, how did you do? And let me just say, um, 10 or 12 standing ovations and an hour long Zig Ziglar talk with 10,000 people in the room. That was not an uncommon thing. Uh And he never once uh, mentioned the applause. He always judged himself on two things. First is that I give it all I had in my preparation and in my presentation. Mm -hmm. See, he can control that. Yeah. Right. And it also accounts for if he's sick, if he's tired, because it's all he had. Yeah. Right. And then the second is the ultimate, and this is the big one. He would say, did I speak God's truth in love? Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, did I bring the truth and did I do it in a loving way? Uh And it was funny how, I mean, I didn't realize it now, but he had, he had Mm self-compassion before he even got on stage Uh to know that if you do this 150 times a year, you are not going to be at peak form 150 times. It's it's impossible. Planes get delayed. You speak four days in a row. I mean, there are all these things, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean that you can't that that you can't prepare prepare to the best of your ability and give it 100. percent That's right. Right. And and that's the self supportive aspect of self compassion. That's giving it the 100. percent You do what you can to do your best. 
give it your all and then you kind of, you know, then you don't have much control over the rest. It's for the shame and self-judgment, which is our more typical way of trying to improve ourselves. Right. It's completely counterproductive. You know, okay. it doesn't mean not seeing where you went wrong. You right. see went wrong. And how can I, how can I improve? How can I support myself as opposed to hanging your head in shame, which just doesn't help anyone. Yeah, that's right. Well, so there's a great point to bring us to what I, another issue that I got to admit, I relate to it's you talk about the influence in our culture, uh, that's caused so much of our critical nature, uh, nature and a specific area is, and you, you mentioned a second ago, self-criticism as a motivating force. Yeah. And I, as I thought about that, I wondered, well, can it be true or is it, I'm asking, is it true? Can it be true that yes, it can be a motivating force. It can drive us to succeed and excel in a certain area even as it damages our self-esteem and has the problems we're talking about. And, and then in that, is it possible to expect more from myself and drive myself to more? And I, of course, I know you hit this on, on this in the book because I, I almost don't want to lose that, but then I, I hear you saying it's, it's hurting me over here. So how can I do it with compassion and an analogy that came, Tom, you'll remember this. We interviewed uh, Christine Hassler uh, a few weeks ago. She's the author of the book expectation hangover. And she's talking about mm -hmm. expectations and managing those. Though so she made a point of saying the solution was not merely lowering our expectations, have high right. expectations, but manage them. So I thought, I bet that's where you're coming from here though, is we can motivate ourselves. We can push ourselves, but we don't have to do it at the sake of criticism as a driving force. Yes. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, if, so if criticism didn't work at all, we wouldn't do it. Obviously it does work. So you might say the motivator is fear and, you know, just like you can, it's very similar to how you discipline a child. If you put the fear of God and like you actually physically harm your child when they mess up, they will be motivated not to do it. But there are unintended consequences. The fear itself can actually start to get in the way of, um, good performance, right? Not not to mention the parents. There's other social issues as well. But so any any endeavor, endeavor, fear is a motivator. But performance anxiety is probably the number one thing that gets in our way in terms of helping us achieve our full potential. So yes, we want expectations. We want to reach our best. We don't want to lower our standards. Research shows that self compassion does not lower your standards at all. All it does is when you don't meet your standards. Do you like to say, oh, therefore I'm terrible, I'm no good, you know, I'm going to give up? Or do you say, no, I'm going to try again. You know, where did I go wrong? It's safe to do that. With self-compassion, it's like, oh, I see, I did this wrong, or I messed up there. Because you don't think it for personally, right? It's just, okay, this is where I went wrong. It doesn't mean I'm bad. This is just my behavior wasn't as good. And it actually gives you the information you need to um, do your best next time. Okay. So reading right out of your book, uh, this is a quote from you. Most of us are incredibly hard on ourselves when we finally admit some flaw or shortcoming. I'm not good enough. I'm worthless. And so to me, this brought up two, two issues that we deal with in the personal development world. And I'm sure you've hit on specifically one is uh, humility or, or really unhealthy humility, where we think we're supposed to belittle ourselves and downplay ourselves. So that's one side is what came to mind. The other was again, kind of the high performance where we demand much of ourselves and subscribe to the theology that of course, of course, we're never good enough. And our quest is to daily better ourselves and never be satisfied or complacent, which is mm -hmm. kind of the world I would have come from. Mm -hmm. But again, both of those, I, I, I don't know, are, are those even different ends of the spectrum? Are they just a different flavor of the same thing? 
Well, I mean, so um, the kind of shame is, I don't think shame is actually humility. Mm-hmm. I think shame, when you, when you say, you know, I'm, I'm horrible, whatever. It's really, it's, it's kind of a strange, twisted form of narcissism because it's saying, I should have been able to be perfect. It's like easier is for it's easy for us emotionally to say I should have been perfect I could have been perfect than to admit that actually I'm an imperfect human being and I can't always get it right that's kind of that's real humility you know I tried my best I still didn't do it right you know that, that's what it means to be human um, but then then the other side of it which was um, sorry you just said the other side was the going forward just the high like, performance mm-hmm. of hey I'm I am here to drive myself of course I'm oh, not yeah. better enough I'm yes, never right, going right. to yeah so so again um, a lot of it's your intention I mean I think with any sort any human endeavor we have to really be clear about what's our intention is my intention to outperform others is my intention to be perfect if my is my intention to you know, get love by achievement, then the, maybe your intention's a little off base. Maybe your intention isn't serving you. But if your intention is true, which is, I really want to do the best I can. I'm motivated. I care. I want to help myself. I want others. This is, if your intention is pure, then that will actually carry you forward. That's where you get your energy and motivation from. It's your intention to achieve what you want to achieve, to, to help others, to help yourself um but it's not always totally clear from the outside so it really takes a little introspection you know why am i doing this what's really deeply important to me and i find typically if you help people clarify their values and what's important to them they will tend to make decisions that are consistent with that well on that note of uh, it's not always clear from the outside i mean you ask us in the book to think about how do we react to ourselves and our lives in essence when they are in difficulty when i'm in a difficult moment when I mess up, when I uh, make a mistake, when I'm a victim of, of, of something, is that right there just a foundational self-audit, a, a telltale sign that if you, if you videotaped you know, the five incidents of my day where something doesn't go right and I have that frustrated or, or, or upset moment, how I react, are you going to usually be able to say, okay, I can kind of tell where he stands in the self-compassion department? Yeah, well, I mean, so basically, you don't need my external perspective. You yourself can say, would I say this to a dear friend I cared about or maybe my child? Would I say these words? Would I use this tone? Sometimes it's not even what you say. It's like the tone, kind of this harshness, this, you know. And if the answer is no, then all you need to say is, well, how would I say it to a friend I cared about? Usually it's going to be warmer, more supportive, more encouraging. You know, you aren't going to undermine the person. You're going to try to help them achieve their goal. Then typically, then you know that that's a more compassionate way to be. And you know, you you know, again, I I tell people all the time, just ask yourself the simple question. Would I say this to a friend or someone I really cared about? The answer is no. Well, then how would I say it? And then try that way and see, see what the effect is. Okay. Well, so you have, again, at your website, uh, selfcompassion.org, you have the self-compassion, uh, test in, in essence, which yeah. I first looked at and I was a little overwhelmed. I thought, I'm going to, I'm going to read the book and talk with you first and I'm going to go back yeah. in and I'm going to do that sucker. But I did want to, as just as a, uh, to kind of pull people to an end here with three mm-hmm. components of self-compassion yeah. that you line out and it's self-kindness, number one, 
Number two, common humanity. And number three, mindfulness. And I wanted to ask you a little bit on each one of those. So number one on self-kindness that we be uh, gentle and understanding with ourselves rather than harshly critical and judgmental. And yeah, again, honest admission. That's it's, it's a little foreign as I, as I read that to how I have treated myself, which to me feels like that's probably a, a red flag. And, you know, I tend to think uh, as a guy that this issue, well, I'll ask is maybe harder for guys than women, or is it just a personality style? I'm a little bit curious on that. And if you well, give some clarity, yeah, women are actually a little less self-compassionate than men. They tend to be a little harder on themselves than men are, believe mm. it or not. Um, but they're, they're better. They're more skilled at being compassionate to others. So all you got to do for women is get oh. them to use the skill with themselves. Um, but just to say, although it is true, we want to be gentle and kind and understanding. Um, don't, don't forget that kindness also means to support and protect, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not all just softness. Sometimes what you need is like to pick yourself up and say, listen, you are harming yourself. Stop it really firmly, you know, support, supporting yourself, protecting yourself from harm. That's also part of being a good friend and being kind. So I think some people just think it's more the soft, gentle stuff. And sometimes it is, but sometimes it can be quite firm. There's there's a term called fierce compassion. Mm. Fierce compassion means, you know, when you are going to protect someone from harm fiercely, but with, with, but your heart's open as opposed to closed. That's really the difference. Okay. Okay. Well, number two, then you say common humanity, feeling connected with others and the experience of life rather than feeling isolated and alienated yes. by our suffering. Okay. And I just, a couple, couple people in my life came to mind right away, including myself, where, where I, it's, to some sense, I, I think we tend to, it feels like we tend towards shame and feeling that our, whatever is wrong with us, our sin, our lack, our weakness, it's the worst. And, and right. is this where you're trying and to it's say? Just us. It's, yeah, and it's just us. <laughs> And when no. you're, is this the common humanity you're saying, look, you're in good company in essence? Well, it's just giving up the expectation that of human of perfection, right? I mean, show me the contract you signed before you're born into this earth saying, I will be perfect. I will never make mistakes. I will never go wrong. I mean, that contract doesn't exist. The contract we signed was, I'm going to be fully human. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to be led astray and hopefully I'll find my way back again. I mean, that is something that we all share. Um, it's really interesting if you get a room of like a hundred people talking about shame and their, their core belief, like I'm inadequate or I'm a fraud. And everyone's like, you, you, I mean, we don't believe that we all carry these ideas, but, but that too is part of being human. So it's really just um, seeing things clearly, which is, this is the way things were designed. You know, we, we, we seem being human means being imperfect. And when you can be okay with that mm-hmm. and nonetheless still try your, you try your best, you know, we, we do the best we can, but we give up the uh, expectation of being superhuman. And that's what allows our hearts to soften. Okay. And helps us actually, it helps us achieve more in the long run. Well, which is what we would all like to do. Well, the third one there then is mindfulness, which you've mentioned multiple times and you're writing there is that we hold our experience in balanced awareness rather than ignoring our pain or exaggerating it. So right away again, I, I thought of personal experience. I've had, uh, two counselors specifically that I've gone to just for personal growth and both gave me papers 
that outline an emotional dashboard of feelings because I generally ignore my feelings. So, uh, I, I have, I'm a work in progress. I'm working on that, but it it feels like that's, it's not just because mindfulness, we talk, you you guys started off, you and Tom both were talking about uh, social awareness in in essence. And that's one where I would say, gosh, I, I think I am with other people. But if you're talking about mindfulness towards myself, my feelings. Yeah. And again, those, those, those areas where I need to have self-compassion, I am not, that's, that's foreign territory. Uh, again, am I, am I on the right wavelength here? Yeah. So, yeah. So really that's what mindfulness is. We usually have two extremes. Either we suppress our emotions, especially if they're difficult, you know, I'm just not going to go there and we can't give ourselves what we need if we don't know how we're struggling. Right. Maybe, maybe what you need is to slow down or maybe what you need is a little, you know, hug from your, your, your partner or something like that. But if you don't acknowledge that you're struggling, you actually can't give yourself what you need. So, so suppression isn't good. Also, it doesn't really work. I mean, there's lots of research that shows like if you try not to think about something, you actually just think about it more. So yeah, in a way I kind of wish it would work, but it it doesn't. I didn't Mm -hmm. design our brain. Our brain's don't suppress well. Um, but the other extreme is getting lost in the storyline, right? So not only am I angry, it's like, this is the worst thing that ever happened. And, you know, we just get, we get, we kind of like, we lose all perspective. We get sucked into the emotions, usually one or the other. We either avoid it or we get sucked in. So mindfulness, again, is a state of balance. And it also means being a little, like not taking yourself so personally. Mm. Like, you know, okay, instead of being anger, it's like, wow, I'm really angry. Actually, I've done that before. Sometimes when I've gotten really angry, I've actually said, wow, I'm really angry. And, and that little split sliver of space where I can say I'm really angry is what actually allowed me to get out of some difficult situations. You know, like actually maybe I should leave because I'm really angry and I can't trust my reactions. So it's just giving you that little bit of awareness, a little bit of spaciousness so you aren't totally lost in the reaction. And then hopefully you can make some better choices that are more aligned with your values. Well, I think I've showcased the reality of why we did the interview is I was just looking for some free counseling. So thank you uh, so much. I mean, again, Kristen, this was when you hit on self-esteem specifically, that's what helped me really in some ways back into self-compassion because at the forefront, it's not something, it's not a term that I was so familiar or had given a lot of focus to, but self-esteem and how I deal with that. Again, you just, uh, really resonated and I really felt like it would with the audience. So, so thank you. And I do folks want to pull you again to, uh, self-compassion.org. It, it, it may be, it will, will that work or is it self-compassion? I saw that on the, either both will work. Both will work. Okay. Go there, check out uh, what Kristen is doing her Ted talk. I think it's on the website there, but you can find it. Put Kristen K R I S T I N Neff, Dr. Kristen Neff into uh, there with a Ted talk into any search engine. You'll find it. It's uh, again, I think it's about 800,000 views already. Uh, We have, we talk a lot. Uh, She comes up in conversations, Brene Brown. I know you guys do, I think uh, a a seminar together, a workshop together. Yeah. A little online course you can take and okay and I actually have a lot of um practices i've got guided meditations i have little short practices you can take your self-compassion the test see what you score i've really tried to make it a free resource i also have almost every research study that's been published on self-compassion available in pdf form on my website so any research nerds can have a field day <laughs> okay there you go tom that's your call out all right <laughs> that's right i'll be busy 
Okay. All right. Well, Kristen, again, thank you. And thank you for walking with us and with the audience as we do strive to inspire our true performance, but in healthier and healthier ways. So thanks again for coming. And folks, thanks for tuning in to The Ziggler Show. Thank you so much. Thank you.